again, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm the host and the executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to cultivate and maintain the highest standards of professional practice within the recovery field. This podcast is in furtherance of that mission, and on behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. In her 2013 publication, Ending Addiction for Good, researcher and writer Dr. Constance Scharf outlines parallels in the overall approach of naturopathic medicine and what is now considered to be effective substance use disorder treatment. The field recognizes the overall damage that SUDs have on an individual's mind, body, and spirit. And one of the basic tenets of naturopathy is or naturopathy. Actually, um, either, either or, naturopathy or natural. Yeah, they, there's two different ways, naturopathy or naturopathy. Okay. Well, I wasn't sure stuff like that. It's, <laughs> it's treating the whole person. Uh, additionally, the naturopathic belief that the body can heal itself really fits loosely into the primary ethical beliefs of autonomy, where a person seeking or in recovery has the ultimate responsibility for their own decisions and actions for reaching their goals. From a more personal perspective, uh, the opportunity to discuss this topic allows me to honor to play uh, allows me to honor someone who played a big role in my ability to speak on the treatment of opioid use disorders around the country. If you know, many of you know, I've been able to train staff um, in many different states, and I owe that to uh, the late Dr. Patricia Mulrady. Her practice combined traditional medicine with holistic approaches, much to the dismay of many in the medical establishment. Uh, until her passing in 2013. Pat, I know you're listening somewhere. Our guest today is Dr. Jaquel Patterson. Dr. Patterson is a nationally and internationally recognized naturopathic physician and medical director of Fairfield Family Health in Fairfield, Connecticut. She has over 11 years of clinical experience with a focus on anxiety and depression, childhood developmental disorders, Lyme disease, autoimmune conditions, and allergies. She's also the recent past president for the National Association, American Association of Naturopathic Physicians, and serves on the board of the Connecticut Association of Naturopathic Physicians. In addition to her work as a physician, she has been a healthcare executive for over 11 years in the capacity of operations, most recently serving as the VP of Operations and Compliance at Community Health Resources. To put it simply, she's an educator, she's an author, uh, and she is a clinical professional. Welcome to the show, Dr. Patterson. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Really excited to speak about natural naturopathic medicine and natural medicine as it pertains to um, substance use disorder. So thank you so much again for having me. You're welcome. And I want to say uh, that I saw that you had just won an award. Oh, yes, yes. Atlanta. Yes, I'm Medical Moguls of the Year Award. I was happy he's the only, he's a naturopathic doctor representative. <laughs> um, and so, yes, it was an honor. I've been busy plugging away, you know, in the profession at large and in my practice. So it was a, it was a nice award. Well, we're, you know, congratulations on that. Uh, Well-deserved, I'm sure. And just really before we start, I have to say for my own sake that anything we discuss is informational only and it's not medical advice. Uh, before undertaking any process to address your health, please meet with your personal health care provider. Uh, that's just kind of, I feel much more comfortable saying that. Um, so moving forward, um, I don't want to assume that our listeners have really a substantial understanding of naturopathic medicine. So let's kind of start there. Given the limitations of our time, 
can you offer us kind of a condensed version of naturopathic practice? Sure. So condensed version, that's not easy. So um, naturopathic medicine believes in, in getting to the underlying cause of disease. And so we go through a four-year naturopathic medical program, four-year doctoral program, so um, through an accredited school. So that's important to know, like you mentioned, you want to work with somebody if you are looking at doing um, naturopathic or functional medicine, someone that's trained and actually went to an accredited school. We actually take two license exams um, and have a specific several thousand clinical hours that we must meet to, to be working as a naturopathic doctor. And so... So basically, we get to the underlying cause of disease. Um, there's six key tenets, many of which include prevention, um, treat the whole person, getting to the underlying cause of disease. So one of the big pieces we look at is lifestyle. Um, you know, obviously, lifestyle, diet, that impact on your health, and also some barriers. So one of the things is oftentimes when you meet with a naturopathic doctor, we're spending typically much more time with a patient. And so with that being said, we often, I do find, you know, ask those questions of their trauma, their background, what's happened before their health condition uh, occurred, including things like autoimmune conditions or various disease conditions. Because oftentimes we hold these past experiences in our systems that kind of were never really managed or no doctor ever actually asked that question. And so um, we're, another big piece in terms of our tenant is doctor as teacher and so we spend a lot of time going through education on things like lab work and education about why these things are important, which is, you know, is, is also is very unique. So, so yeah, so and one of the other things as we say is that we have a lot of tools in our, um, our toolkit. So, you know, if you have a hammer and a nail, you'll just, you know, everything is a nail in your eye. So for us, the thing is we might do lifestyle as a focus. We might do mind and mind body. We might do nutritional supplementation, herbal medicine, acupuncture, um, naturopathic manipulation. So we have many different modalities, but it really depends on the person in front of us and what treatment option we'll decide to, um, to use. Which is a significantly different than traditional medicine. Um, in many cases, people will go to their, their physician for something and there's an automatic response of, you need penicillin, you need this, um, rather than necessarily taking a, a look at the bigger picture of what's going on with that person. Um, and I, I'm certainly not throwing uh, traditional medicine under the bus with that. It's just a totally different approach. Mm -hmm. It's a disease-based approach. Exactly. So the others is more symptom based, which is just that the model and honestly, the healthcare model is that way. And for us, it's more, you know, wh where is the symptom coming from? Why, why did the symptom happen? Um, and so it's just like you said, it's a completely different philosophical approach. It, it's really, you know, and we talk about it a lot in substance use disorder treatment, it's meeting that individual where they're at. Mm -hmm. um, you're treating the symptoms and getting to the underlying causes as opposed to looking for something diagnostically and saying, this is what standard practice is for this. Exactly. Um, and, and we're starting and moving that way in terms of, of substance disorder treatment. Through my research for our discussion, uh, you know, there's a name that kept coming up and it's Dr. Dave Arneson. He's a founder and medical director of the Source Medical Clinic in Phoenix. And he's been treating substance use disorders for the bulk of the 21st century. Interestingly, he's been teaching, uh, been treating individuals with substance use disorders for as long as he's been sober. He's very open and clear about that, that it kind of coincides with his sobriety. Um, one of the things that he talks about that I find fascinating is a low success rate of monotherapies compared to the much greater effectiveness 
of holistic therapies. The substance use disorder field is a little bit behind in general in going that way, but we, we've been really seeing that over the last 10 years or so. But can you talk about what naturopathic care, you know, may consist of for substance use disorders? Yes. So I actually think in some ways substance use and also, you know, mental health are a little bit further ahead than a conventional medical medicine track because of the fact that you are looking at um, holistically at the person, right? And so I think integrative medicine kind of ties into that because you're looking at the person holistically. And so one of the things in terms of, there has been much research in terms of its use um, with withdrawal, with um, effectiveness in terms of therapy, and um, also compliance as well. So one very known one is, um, is acupuncture, auricular acupuncture, which has been studied and proved. Um, they've been doing it since um, NADAP um, acupuncture um, is the one that is most known, auricular acupuncture detox, which they're using pretty frequently. It started in the 70s at Lincoln Hospital. And um, there are t- tons of research on its effectiveness with actually increasing compliance also from those like post-follow-up visits increasing um, just basically effectiveness of, of protocol and, and also just having that option for people to have less of withdrawal symptoms. And so there's definitely much research as it pertains to that and for acupuncture, which is one of the modalities we do. Another piece that you want to always look at is like the food, the diet. And so a lot of um, individuals with addictive disorders tend to have um, much higher issues of like in terms of dietary issues and many nutrients that are deficient like zinc. Um, Iron is actually another one because something you wouldn't think of, but it actually has to get processed um, through the, you know, through the liver. And so if you have something like an alcohol addiction, your body can't um, absorb things like iron efficiently. Um, another deficiency, B vitamins, zinc deficiencies, and these all often come from unbalanced meals and high consumption of carbohydrates because lots of times our brain chemistry has changed, you know, when you have an addictive disorder. And so the chemistry is more suited to having high caloric foods, high carbohydrates so that your body can have that same feeling um, as you would if you were to take something, um, you know, a chemical that you would actually be taking in. And so typically those foods are going to make you deficient um, in a lot of minerals you need, like zinc that I mentioned, magnesium is the common uh, common one, or, or we're eating foods that are fast food. And so we're not getting proper essential uh, fatty acids and other things that balance out the system. So one of the things I always want to work on is the basics of just the, the diet. And so how do we, um, like you said, meeting people where they're at, because I don't want to also have somebody and then like, oh, you got to be an organic and changing everything completely. It might mean just like, let's have a little fast, less fast food. It might mean doing something like the plate method to begin people off with steps. But usually the first start is the, the diet and lifestyle because there are definitely very core um, deficiencies as a result overall of addiction disorders completely. Um, And so we want to assess that. And then when I'm meeting with them the first time, how open they are, are they open uh, to treat to what kinds of treatments? There's things like mind body, there's yoga. Um, There's a lot of studies on the effectiveness of yoga for addiction and mental health. Reiki is another one that's energy work. Um, 
biofeedback is another one. So there are a lot of therapies that are uh, more like physical where you don't even have to ingest or take something that people can feel better with. The same they found with acupuncture is that one of the reasons it was also effective was that people didn't have to do talk therapy. You know, they didn't have to speak. It was a way of getting um, improved in their health without having to like they're participating by just coming, not by having to communicate, which for some people, it's really hard. Um, as we all know, in that first one or two, you know, in their first interactions, immediate interactions. So they found doing these things early on in treatment helped to actually improve the effectiveness of the medication treatment, um, which is what you were talking about. The uh, auricular acupuncture, I've actually seen how that works. Um, working in OTPs as part of my clinical career. Um, that was always available to an option to those patients that wanted it. And the, the individuals that uh, chose it would swear by it. Um, and one lady that uh, was talking about how effective she had no belief in it at first, but they had told her before you come in and, and start, please don't smoke for a little while because we'll hit something in your ear and you'll jump out of your seat. And she's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and that happened. Oh, and yes. she said, they weren't kidding. <laughs> they swear by it. And so I think that, you know, it's an important aspect. Um, and it also, the, the ability to relax and just kind of be, be uh, in that environment is important. And that's one of the benefits too, is just acupuncture or any of the physical medicine treatments. It's like how often in life, you know, our life, we're moving so fast with things um, and we often don't take that time to pause. So it kind of forces you to just kind of be in that time where you're doing self-care, mm. which is everything. So it really makes, uh, it really is telling you're sending your body messages too by giving it something that it needs. And is that kind of is causing you to kind of settle in as well. The, with the nutrition, one of the things that I had seen and it's very common uh, in in treat, uh, addiction treatment programs is uh, the craving of sugar. Somebody will mm -hmm. enter recovery and go through it, and then you ask them what they're eating. And I had an individual who used to tell me he put sugar on Captain Crunch. And I think he was exaggerating, but I get the idea. And, and we recognize that it goes right to the pleasure center, the same as any uh, mm -hmm. uh, substance will affect that. But we don't talk enough, I think, in the field about just general nutrition. Um, I don't expect our folks certainly to know the ins and outs of nutrition, but instead of just saying, Hey, lay off the sugar, lay off the sugar. Uh, but if he goes right into the carbohydrate issues and, and, you know, I really think that that's important and, and encourage folks to kind of take a look at that. Yes. And it hits the same center at that same, that feeling. So actually what you were mentioning in terms of the craving hypoglycemia is actually like, I think 80, somewhere over 85% common in addictive disorders. And it's because um, your actual, your brain, one of the ways the neurons or neurotransmitters get fuel is from glucose and blood sugar. So what happens is you're needing that constant fuel. Same as why college students, you know, they, we gain the freshman 15 or 20, it's usually carbohydrates you're craving because you're studying and focusing. So your body actually uses sugar as fuel to get into the brain. And so that's why most uh, folks with addictive disorders, it's very common. And what happens is those fluctuations actually mimic some signs that you could have if you were on, you know, 
were um, on anything that was chemically induced in terms of rapid heartbeat, blurry vision, mood changes, nervousness, anxiety. So oftentimes because of that, you also, if you're eating those diets, you become deficient in other nutrients. So another one, interestingly enough, is chromium. And chromium is one um, that helps actually get glucose into the cells. And so um, a lot of uh, folks that are consuming diets like that will be oftentimes also um, chromium deficient. And that's because your body has been, you know, using it because you've, you've been expending it because you've been using, eating, you know, consuming so many simple carbohydrates instead of complex. I'm, I'm appreciative of you mentioning, uh, mentioning glucose because of the physician I had mentioned earlier, uh, Dr. Pat Mulready used to always tell us, remember, glucose is the fuel of the brain. Glucose is the fuel of the brain. If you remember nothing about chemistry, remember that. Exactly. And, um, I'm, I'm, you know, it just brought that back up for me. And it's, <laughs> it kind of makes me chuckle. Um, but, it's, you know, I think that's such an important step. Well, we talk about, for many folks, not for all, the first step in, in entering recovery is, is, is detoxification or what we simply, it's removal of toxins from the body. From a, a holistic perspective, are there herbs and minerals that can aid with that process? Yeah, so there are several pieces. Um, the first piece, like I mentioned, I want to first work on like getting them into at least a well-balanced diet, including what we just talked about, complex carbohydrates instead of the simple carbohydrates. Also good quality protein. One thing people don't know, people don't know is that chemical substance actually um, impair the amino acids. So amino acids are building blocks for protein. Um, it actually impairs their ability to digest properly. So a lot of people you'll see are like what they call muscle wasting um, because they're not getting the adequate protein, but it actually impairs it. So, so I first usually look at that in terms of obviously the diet and how we get that supported. But there are things... Um, foods I'll usually first start work, work, working with that are helpful to support the liver. So you have detox pathways, um, phase one and phase two processes are all through your liver. And so you usually want to have foods that are supportive of, of uh, just um, helping the phases of detox through your liver. And so the first things we begin to, I want, it's important to try to work with somebody that's also trained in that because this can also be different for everybody. Um, and so also dosages and things like that can also be different for the person. So some foods that they usually recommend that are helpful for the liver are what they call cruciferous vegetables. So those things include like artichokes, um, artichokes are one, dandelion, spinach, uh, broccoli, uh, cabbage, those are all what they call cruciferous vegetables and help the liver process things better. So I usually try to get people to do it through food. Um, the studied herbs are actually known for uh, like detox are milk thistle. I'm sure you've heard, a lot of people have heard of milk thistle. Mm -hmm. And that actually has healing support uh, for the liver and also has been shown to support like cirrhosis and also fatty liver uh, due to alcohol particularly. But it both protects the liver um, from internal and external toxins. So it's more of like a general protector. Another one people really like is, um, is dandelion, which is a liver detoxifier dandelion root. Oftentimes you get root and leaf. Um, leaf they actually use as a natural diuretic and also good for blood pressure. Um, and so usually you'll get the forms of both in, in together. You can get dandelion by food, but dandelion root is a common one that helps with detoxifying and also helps with bile flow. So your bile um, comes through the gallbladder, 
um, produced like, in conjunction with the liver and it helps to transport your nutrients appropriately. Another thing, which is a food you can eat, is artichokes. And artichokes actually helps with um, neutralizing like free radicals in terms of helping with antioxidants, but it also helps with sugar levels, which we just said is important, and also helps to um, stimulate um, bile, which helps to break down fats and things like that in your system. So there's tons of foods I usually start off with, but those you know pieces I mentioned, artichoke, dandelion, milk thistle, you can also get in herb format in like a much higher um, dosage. And so you definitely want to work with somebody on what the appropriate dosage is, but you can get those as um, herbal tinctures as well to help support the liver, liver even further. I'm going to guess that you get the information of what's going on through, through blood work and through basic liver functions tests. Exactly. Things like that. Yeah. So you want to definitely check um, a com- what's called a complete metabolic panel usually, which will include things like AST and ALT, which are checking for your liver enzymes. You may also want to check out gallbladder markers, but you're right. You want to make sure, you know, check to see, you know, what you currently are at initially. Um, but it does um, before you're taking any of those things as well as kidney function tests. If your kidney's not functioning well, you also don't want to remove a lot of toxins and binders. So a lot of people are on binders like, Oh, I get asked that question. Oh, should I just be on binders like charcoal, which um, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of that. You have to realize that you have to make sure your kidney is working well because you're removing toxins out of your system and your kidney has to take that burden. And then also when you take binders, like strong things like charcoal or zeolite, if you take them for a long time, it does help to remove things, but it also removes everything. So it could remove nutrients that you actually need, like good nutrients. So it's not good to take them for long periods of time. And I do know people that they're like, oh yeah, I'm taking charcoal every day. That's not a good thing because you're actually depleting yourself of good nutrients as well. Well, that's really interesting. And, and the only thing I know about liver functions is a physician taught me that uh, to look at the GGTP level to get an idea of whether the, the clients that I've worked with have said they weren't drinking, um, mm-hmm. were drinking uh, pretty regularly, I would notice it in an elevated GGTP. Mm-hmm. That's the extent of my knowledge. That's all that. you know? No, that's good. Turn into gallbladder. <laughs> yeah, so that would be one of the ones you'd want to check GGT, uh, maybe amylase, lipase, like any of their pancreatic enzyme. You know, that would be, so you'd do that full, a broad test, but GGT definitely could be elevated. So look at you, says, how do you know that? Stuff. They're like, how do you know that? And I'm like, what do you mean? How do I know that you're drinking? You know, I can just tell. i can tell by looking at your liver functions um dr arneson he states that you know that when nutritional treatments are involved early on the length of post-acute withdrawal syndrome can be reduced from what's a normal average of six months to up to two years to as little as three to six weeks and this is from research in 2019 um so you talked a little bit about uh how nutrition plays a role in healing the body. Um, can you talk a little bit about the reduction in post-acute withdrawal symptoms? So that's, that's actually partially also, I mean, very much so how it also helps because if you're deficient in those nutrients, then you're going to like, I'm, we mentioned B vitamins, B vitamins are in a lot of these complex carbohydrates that we're using to make us of that glucose, which you talk about for the brain. And so if you're deficient in those, and now you're um, removing these things that help with that feeling, you're going to feel even more heightened with those deficiencies. You know, it's going to be even harder. So it's going to be really important that you're getting back those basic core nutrients, typically B vitamins, typically zinc, magnesium, um, 
Iron is another one you want to check, especially if it's related to alcohol because it, it reduces its ability to, to go, you know, it blocks some of those pathways to the liver. So the biggest reason with that, with the withdrawal, it helps is because if you're so deficient in those, your body is craving this and, it, and, and, the, and, the, and the only source is going to be through, either through a chemical or mm. it's going to be through food. And so that is sometimes why people like post, like as they're going through withdrawal, they're going to also be craving a lot of bad foods or gaining weight and all of these other things because your body is trying to compensate for that lack of what you're getting from the chemical. Uh, when I worked in an OTP, there was, and this kind of goes back to something you said earlier about the freshman 15, um, which I had forgotten about. But we would see significant weight gain in people once they had entered recovery, and they would say, oh, it's the methadone, oh, it's the methadone. Although methadone can add to some weight gain, we had to look at their diet and see what they were eating, and it was a lot of simple uh, simple carbs that they were gaining the weight from, not and from lack of activity, not necessarily the methadone. Yeah, so if you can provide those nutrients through like supplement form or what have you, that can help with that piece because your body is not now having to try to get it from the, you obviously want to get as many nutrients all the time from your foods, but if you can do it through evaluating and giving the nutrients that will help um, so that, that there won't be that, you know, over response of trying to do it through um, foods that are not actually good foods for you. You know, with Dr. Arneson, one of the things that he talks about, I mentioned earlier, is, is meeting the person where they're at. But I do have a little bit of a criticism. Um, he talks about that uh, nutrition, you know, naturopathic care, and then entering, you know, a 12-step fellowship. And as we move forward, I, I, I would rather have him say something, recovery supports and building recovery capital, rather than specifically uh, a 12-step requirement. Uh, to kind of open it up a little bit, but believe me, if that's a, the the biggest criticism of that that I'd have, that he, it's it's kind of pigeonholing people into something. Uh, you know, he's in good shape. Uh, I was really mm -hmm. impressed with the stuff that I read from him, based on my thirty year career of of, of doing this. As individuals move through the acute phase of the recovery process, you know, what does a reassessment of the needs uh, and treatment plan look like? So, I mean. It could vary, you know, depending uh, on the patient and the doctor. But typically, at least when I'm working with somebody, you might need, especially if it's something like, let's say, acupuncture and, and they're going through that piece, they might need to go in and come in two or three times a week initially until it's the point where it feels more stable for a few months. Um, so oftentimes it's for the physical medicine piece, it's like at least once a week, oftentimes twice a week for the course of a few months and then, you know, meeting in with the provider, it might be every two or three weeks initially for the first few months. And then after typical for us is about a four week, you know, visit a four week follow up. But when you're going through recovery and if there's withdrawal and Medicaid, you know, changes, you, you tend to need to be a lot more hands-on, um, especially with the physical medicine approach, maybe not necessarily in the, the, the actual visit, um, but definitely in ways that are going to actually help to relieve that, that burden. And, and I would assume that in the acute stages and detox, you're seeing rapid changes in the body and brain that needs much more ongoing assessment and, and care. Mm -hmm. Yes. In this prolonged opioid epidemic, um, some traditional physicians actually prefer monotherapy. 
using a partial agonist medication with uh, without other professional supports. Uh, so much so that trade associations for uh, addiction physicians have advocated for such language in, in education. They want it to be doctor based. We're going to give them therapy, and we're I mean we're going to use uh, uh, partial agonist and no other additional support services. Um, and, and I find that to be, in many cases, it can be dangerous. Uh, you, there's no such thing, I think, as one set practice that works. Um, one of the things that's been impressed upon me through researching this topic is that um, naturopathic care and substance use disorder treatment fit together really, really well, uh, effective substance use disorder treatment. Any thoughts on why that's such a great partnership? I think we... You have to look at people, we in, as naturopathic doctors, and I, I, I think it's, it's, it's expanding in general in medicine and in just healthcare, need to really look at the person as a whole person. And that whole person needs to have choices. We're not split up into, you know, we have this heart issue and that's over here, but then that's not related to this issue. Or my, my, gas, my, stomach, my stomach is, you know, um, bothering me. Um, well, maybe it's related to because my anxiety, you know, is going on and those aren't two separate functions. Our body, even though we get treated, unfortunately, healthcare as these like separate organs and separate pieces, we don't function like that in our physical body. They're all connected. And so I think when it comes to naturopathic med medicine and SUD treatment, it's really critical because th this is going to ultimately lead to, we, we're trying to make lifelong changes and so what happens is when you're only doing like medication, it's, it's one aspect of it, but it's not all the other aspects of who they are as a person. And so what's hap what happens is you would have, be able to have a much better response because you're doing the whole approach of what they're going to have to deal with with their whole life. And that's food, that's exercise, that's their social connections, that's their mental health aspect. It's all of that. It's not just one thing. And so I think when you're only looking at it by way of medication treatment, you're kind of erasing or ignoring that whole other part of who that person is, which is ultimately what, what's going to get them further along in success and longstanding success. So, and, and there's research to show that, that it helps. So I just think um, philosophically, you're going to be, um, you're really treating the whole person and you're really meeting them where they're at by making sure all those options are available for them ultimately to have a longer, a, an outcome that's better in the long term, not just in the year term, two year term, it's in their life term, which to, to me is, is more important than anything. And it makes sense that, that substance use disorders are biopsychosocial. They cover all three aspects. And it sounds like a naturopathic physicians, that's exactly what you're doing. You're exactly. looking at, at things um, as a, from a biopsychosocial perspective. One thing that we didn't, that I didn't mention, and really from talking to you was coming to me was when I worked clinically, one of the things that I was very focused on for the folks I worked with was sleep. Oh, yes, yes. And I think that came from learning and listening to others, but individuals would, would be in a residential program, come in for treatment, and their staff would say, Jane Doe, John Doe is sleeping through treatment. It's got to be a medication issue. My first question was, well, how are they sleeping? Um, and there was an assumption that people, because they're in residential, oh, they were sleeping well. Like, uh -huh. You know, A, you've got the physical reasons they don't sleep well. They may be just generally concerned that it's a new environment. They don't know anyone. They don't trust anybody. Or maybe they've got a history of years and years and years of not sleeping well. 
Um, so I think that that plays a, a big part. Back me up on this. And <laughs> Completely. I love that you, I love that you brought that up because those are the basics. Like I'll work with food, sleep, exercise, water. That's something we take for granted. Like, water that we need to drink that that that's most of our body and we're not drinking that and that doesn't you can't remove toxins well if you're not drinking water sleep is the same thing if you're getting and i have that with a lot of um uh, you know what i've seen with uh, patients with substance use are not getting adequate sleep or actually the average american most americans that's one of the hugest biggest issues is sleep and so we have all of these hormones that get released at nighttime growth hormone gets released Actually, serotonin is also connected, directly connected, which we know is a neurotransmitter with melatonin and the optimal levels and how they work with each other. And so if your sleep quality is poor, you're not getting good sleep, a lot of those, even those neurotransmitters, those things aren't activated. Um, healing, your immune system um, is a lot stronger when you're getting more sleep. If you're not getting enough sleep, it's really hard to, to not get sick. Um, weight, it's actually also connected to weight. There's certain um, um um, ghrelin, leptin, these things that get released in the evening that tell your body to turn off, that it's not eating, like you're fasting, um, and that you're, you're not, you know, and that, that you should be eating. And so all of these things can get interrupted if you're going to sleep at two in the morning or if you're getting three hours of sleep. And this is all, this is entirely the time for your body to heal. And also the other thing is, as we know, addictive disorders affect the chemistry of the brain. It gives the brain a chance to actually recover you know, heal and repair itself and to kind of declutter in a sense overnight. And so if you're not getting the sleep, you're not having the opportunity to do that. And so, yeah, sleep is huge. Um, there's so many things to work on by way of sleep hygiene. I look at that with people, teas, like all of other kinds of things of process. There's obviously supplements that help with that. But um, that is a great first start is like, if you're not getting sleep, you're not going to feel well. It's going to be really hard to be healthy if you're getting less than like, you know, seven hours of sleep or six hours of sleep on a consistent basis. And I think in substance use disorder treatment, especially residential, um, paying special focus on that is important. And residential programs have third shift staff. And the idea of the third shift staff just counting heads um, is not part of effective treatment. It's, they should be looking and noting who's not sleeping well, who's sitting up, who's doing, mm -hmm. so that it can be addressed during the course of the day. Um, bypass that information onto the, to the that is the true staff. because that may be that may be the reason why they're falling asleep during a group session because you notice that they never stay asleep when they're checked you know that they're up they're, they're up you know they get three hours of sleep that is very that's a very very good point point. and I think when you ask somebody about hey tell me about your sleep um, it, it, at least in substance disorder treatment sometimes that get it it, it gives them pause and then think about it for a second because it's it's something that good or bad sleep that they take for granted as well when someone comes into treatment. It's not something they've thought about necessarily because mm -hmm. they're really just trying to survive and, and get through the day. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Patterson, I really thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I know how busy your schedule is. I know all the things that you have to do, especially now being on the Forbes expert panel. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, That's new too. So I, I appreciate your time. Um, I love hearing about this this kind of non-traditional pathway that someone uh, to support recovery. Um, and I hope that we've somehow motivated, motivated individuals uh, to learn more on their own. So thanks again for, for spending the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much again for having me. This was a, a much needed discussion. 
Thanks again for uh, joining us. And that's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like again to thank Dr. Jaquel Patterson and Fairfield Family Health for fitting us into our busy schedule. And we at the CCB appreciate everyone who listens. Don't forget to follow us on Podbeans, iTunes, Amazon Podcasts, or your favorite podcast application. Until next time, everybody. 